right. Thank you all for being here. For those who are in person, thank you all for joining. For those who are in Zoom, uh, this is going to be our final uh, eschatology Bible study. I was trying to remember, I think we started in September, and we were hoping to finish by Thanksgiving. So if we were thinking Thanksgiving of 2023, we're comfortably making that. If we were thinking Thanksgiving of 2022, we missed that by just a little bit. Uh, but actually, I am a little bit sad. I've really, really enjoyed these every other Wednesday nights. Uh, definitely have loved the times we've had together, have loved the discussion, the things the Lord's put in front of us. Um, so I really appreciate for all of you who are participating tonight and for those who have been participating throughout. It's been a blessing for me. But as always, I just want to begin our time by praying and asking the Lord to be the one who is present and speaking to us. Heavenly Father, of course, we want to thank you so much for this day that you have given to us. We want to thank you, Lord God, just for the incredible ways that you continue to care and provide for your creation. And Lord, tonight in particular, we are going to consider this amazing universe that you have made. And Father, even though we continue to see the impact of sin on this creation, we still see so much of the beauty and the glory uh, that you have instilled in it, that is a reflection of you, its creator. And Lord, we also just want to thank you for being present in the times that we have spent on Wednesday night over these last uh, nine to ten months. Thank you for the things that you have spoken to us. Thank you for the things you have revealed to us. Lord, thank you for just feeding us and nourishing us through your word. We are reminded that you have declared that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from your mouth. And we thank you for that. And Jesus, you offer yourself to us. And you said that you are the one who gives true food and true drink to nourish us. And we're grateful to you for that. And so tonight, as we consider uh, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the new creation that you will make for us to inhabit forever, we just pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts as we consider this incredibly glorious, uh, amazing truth. We just pray, Lord God, that your spirit would be building in us a real excitement, a real joy, a real enthusiasm for that time when you will bring with you new heavens and new earth. And we are just wanting, Lord God, to rightly understand the scriptures, to read it correctly, to understand it correctly, and just come to a deeper understanding of you, a deeper understanding of your word. We pray that in the passages that we read, the things that will be said, the questions that will be raised, the discussion that we will have, we pray that in all of that, Lord, that you would be speaking to us. And of course, Lord, we are doing all of this only for you and in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, again, as uh, most of you are aware, and as I just prayed, tonight we are specifically going to be looking at the idea of the new heavens and the new earth. We've been working our way through sort of some of the final themes of eschatology. We looked at final judgment occurring at the end of this age, at the return of Jesus Christ. We all must stand before the Lord and ultimately be judged for what we have done. We spent a couple Wednesdays talking about that. In the last couple Wednesdays, we have been talking about eternal punishment. And an excellent discussion we had uh, last week. Really, really appreciate all of you who participated in that. 
I'm very grateful for the insight, for the questions, for the time that we had together. Certainly, as we consider biblical themes, the theme of eternal punishment, the reality of hell is not one that is joyful or light or easy, but it is absolutely something that is necessary for us to talk about. And remember, one of the things that we emphasized was that Jesus himself talks about it more than anyone else, and really he does that to warn humanity. He does that to warn us, and he does that to warn the rest of humanity that hell is real, and the agony and the punishment of hell is real, but that in him and through him, it is avoidable. It is avoidable. And so we don't want to fall into the trap of dismissing hell or ignoring hell or never talking about hell. We certainly want to speak of it as the scriptures speak of it, as Jesus himself speaks of it. But we also want to understand that a big part of the teaching of hell is an opportunity for humanity to repent and for humanity to avoid spending eternity in hell. We did talk about how there are some within the larger realm of Christianity that have tried to see the scriptures differently, talking about annihilation rather than punishment being eternal. But in our examination of scriptures, we've come to the conclusion that the scriptures don't really bear that out. The scriptures don't ever really teach that wicked humanity will simply cease to exist. There's nothing in the teaching of the New Testament in particular that really bears the weight of that. And so even though it's a concept that's difficult for us to understand, you know, one of the real anchor lines that we had last week is the character of the Lord. The character of the Lord, more than anything else, He is the one that we trust. We trust Him, we trust His character. Nothing that He does can ever even be remotely unjust, unrighteous, unholy, imperfect. Everything he does, everything that he is, everything that he does is perfect. And so even though as humans that are small and finite, we may wrestle with some of the things that he presents to us, we can always trust him. We can always trust him. We will never come to the point where we say we understand everything perfectly. We completely grasp everything that's in scripture. We will never, ever get to that point. But what we can always say is we wholeheartedly trust him. We know who he is, we know what he is like, and so we know that everything he does is in agreement with his character. And so even when discussing something as difficult as eternal punishment, it in no way diminishes the character of God, the glory of God, the purity of God, the perfection of God. And ultimately, as we maybe wrestle a little bit to completely grasp the concept of that, we find our rest, we find our confidence in Him and in His character. So those were some of the things that we were talking about last week. But what we want to do now is we want to jump into this final theme. This final theme. And what we are particularly looking at now is the new heavens and the new earth. And what the scripture makes clear is this is what the Lord Himself will create for us, for those of us who know Him, for those of us who have given our lives to him, this is what the Lord will create for us as a place to be with him forever. And that's what we want to look at tonight. So the first couple of verses we want to look at are 
the first couple of verses in the Bible itself. So all the way back to Genesis 1.1, most of us can say this by heart. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what we understand, and, and hopefully you all grab this sheet. Uh, Carl, do you have it for the folks that are online? Great. So very simply, at the beginning of history and time, God creates the heavens and the earth. So at the very beginning of time, at the very beginning of human history, God creates. God creates the heavens and the earth. And we know that God is eternal, and he existed eternally before creation, before time began, before human history began, God is. He has always been. And everything that he is, he has always been. So at some moment in eternity, he chose to begin human history. He chose to begin time, and he created. And when he created, he created the heavens and the earth. Now, when we think of the term the heavens and the earth, oftentimes when the Bible uses this, the Bible is using this as a phrase which simply means the entirety of creation, or what today we might call the entire cosmos, or the entire universe. We can think in terms of heaven and earth. Heaven is a, a spiritual realm. Earth is the material realm in which we live. There are times where scripture uses the word heaven uses the word earth to describe that. But oftentimes when it's pairing them together, and particularly when it's talking about creation, probably the best way to understand this concept of the heavens and the earth is the entire cosmos. It's similar to what John says in, in, first, in John chapter 1, that everything that is created was created by him. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the entire universe. Then jumping down, the next verse on the sheet is 2-1, but I actually want to add to that uh, 131 and then 2-1. So reading those two verses, Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 and then 2-1. It says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. So if we were to look a little bit more carefully at Genesis 1, what we see is that creation is sort of defined or described as God creating realms and then God creating inhabitants to exist or to live in those realms. So he creates the realm of day and night, light and darkness. Then he creates inhabitants to occupy those realms, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He creates the realm of the upper water, sometimes referred to as the heavens or the sky. He creates the realm of the lower water. Then he creates inhabitants in those realms. So the birds and everything that live in the air, and the fish and everything that live in the sea. Then he creates the realm of the dry land, and then he creates the inhabitants to live in the dry land. All of the animals and then ultimately humanity, the pinnacle of his creation. So we see that one way of understanding the creation account in Genesis 1 is God creates realms or regions and then he creates 
inhabitants to occupy those regions. He doesn't just create the realms of light and darkness, but he creates inhabitants to exist in the realms of light and darkness. He doesn't just create the sky and the oceans, he creates inhabitants to live there, and the same with the dry land. So even as we are beginning to think of the new heavens and the new earth, he's not just creating realms for the sake of them being there. He's creating them for the sake of occupants, inhabitants, to live there and to enjoy them. And obviously the concept of the new heavens and the new earth is completely bound up with the beginning of time, with the beginning of history. Because at the very beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He made realms and inhabitants to occupy those realms. But one of the key things to emphasize is that in Genesis 1.31, the evaluation of creation is that it was very good. And one of the things that we want to emphasize in saying that is that this includes the material or physical aspect of creation. With Greek philosophy a little bit before the time of the coming of Christ and then a bit after the coming of Christ, there became a, an understanding that the body was, was bad. The body was, was evil. The body was less than perfect. It was the immaterial, the soul or the spirit that was good. And so you try to separate yourself from the physical body. So you had uh, asceticism, which was you know, completely denying yourself of any physical pleasure. You didn't enjoy food. You didn't enjoy alcohol. You didn't enjoy sex. You completely removed yourself from that, sometimes referred to as stoicism. That was one of the offshoots of this Greek idea that the physical is bad, that the physical is, is less than good. There were others that said, well, since the physical is so Un insignificant and so unimportant, we can just completely indulge it. It doesn't matter. And these became known as hedonists. So they ate, they drank, they did whatever they could to completely enjoy their physical body because they're like, well, this is just of no value because it's the spirit that counts. But that's not biblical at all. Because what Genesis 131 makes clear is that the entirety of God's creation, including the material and physical components of it, when he created them, they were very good. The physical world is not bad. The physical world is not inherently sinful. Now, sometimes in Christian circles, we tend to adopt that Greek idea that the physical body is bad or the physical body is of less significance. Because we look at the, the um, pair that Paul sets up, the spirit and the flesh. And so we think, okay, spirit, that is immaterial, and flesh, that's, that's my body. Well, there are, of course, some occasions when the New Testament uses the word flesh, and it's simply referring to our physical bodies. But when Paul uses it, particularly in contrast to the spirit, he's not talking about our physical bodies. He's talking about everything that resides in us that is opposed to and resistant to God and his will. That is what Paul is talking about in the flesh. So he's not talking about our spirit and our physical bodies. 
which is the way some people wrongly understand that. And again, you see that kind of reinforces this idea that the physical things that God has made are less good or even evil. No, not at all. Not at all. What the Apostle Paul is saying in this contrast is these, or this is everything that is in line and in agreement with the will and the desires of God. And this is that old part of us, that sinful humanity. And so NIV actually usually translates this sinful nature. And again, it's a great, it's a great interpretation, but some would argue that it's not a great translation because the best translation of the word that, that Paul uses is, is flesh. But to avoid this sort of bad theology, NIV chose to translate and then somewhat interpret it and read it as sinful nature. So particularly like when you're reading Romans, you hear Paul talking about the spirit and the sinful nature. That certainly helps avoid the misunderstanding that what is physical and material is, is bad, but it certainly is not as close to what Paul actually wrote. But we as, as followers of Christ, we need to be very careful that we don't disparage the physical component of God's creation. And again, what we are going to see is that the new heavens and the new earth that God creates are going to be very much material and physical. We've already talked about how we as believers are promised eternal resurrection bodies. We are not going to spend eternity as simply immaterial spirits and souls. We are going to spend all, all eternity in physical bodies. Just like when Jesus rose from the dead. Remember initially, the disciples thought that they were seeing a ghost. And he says, you know, touch me, handle me, give me something to eat. I'm not a ghost. I have a physical body. So one of the things that is so important for us to understand as we begin this discussion of the new heavens and the new earth is that when God initially created all of the cosmos, including the material and physical world, it was very good. It was very good. And what we are heading towards is not an eternity without any sort of physical or material existence. We are heading towards a new heaven and a new earth that will very much be physical, very much be material, and we will enjoy the Lord and enjoy what he has created for us in physical bodies. Okay? So that's just sort of a part of the foundation that we want to lay here. All right? Question, Dave. Yeah. Question? Yep. Uh, this is Flora. Um, I, I know, like, basically in the church sometimes people have always you know, granting to the flesh is bad. And that's contrary, I think, to what you're saying here. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Flora. Know. Can you repeat yourself? I'm having trouble understanding you. What, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. It's just, it's, it's not very clear. Just say it again, please. Um, what, in the, uh, in the past, sometimes in the church, we've been uh, led to believe that the flesh is bad. Whereas what you're saying is that, you know, in, in the sight of God, what he created based on um, Genesis 1.31, that is good. Well, I mean, that, that's, it was very good as it was initially created. 
Uh, yeah. that, 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 so we're, we're just beginning the discussion because obviously what we're going to see next is that creation fell and that has a dramatic, sin has a dramatic impact on creation. So what, what I'm saying is that in and of itself, the, the physical material aspect of God's creation is not evil in and of itself. Okay, but let's, let's, let's jump ahead because I think maybe this will help. So the next passage that we have here is Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. So obviously what has transpired, Adam and Eve have disobeyed the clear commandment of the Lord not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent is cursed, and the woman is cursed, and the man is cursed. But what we see also is that creation itself, the earth, is cursed. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. It says, To Adam, he says, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Okay? So we see now, and Flora, this is kind of getting to the question that you were raising. We see now there, there is a shift. As God created the heavens and the earth, as God created all of the material, physical components of the cosmos, it was all very good. But he absolutely gave authority to subdue it, to oversee it, to humanity. So when humanity chose to rebel against the Lord and disobey the clear commandment that he had given to them, all of creation was impacted. All of creation fell. And so what we see here is that the language that is used by the Lord is that the ground or the earth is now cursed. It doesn't mean that it is completely evil. Okay? Because we can still see so clearly remnants of that very, very good component to creation. And the scriptures make that clear. You know, the heavens declare the glories of God. We can still look at the world that God has created and see his glory in it. Absolutely. But what is now true is that this is not the only thing that's going on in creation. There is now a curse. So this very good earth or ground that the Lord made because humanity's sin is now under a curse. So we see both. And the scriptures describe this in an incredibly powerful and profound way. It says, Through painful toil you will eat of it, the ground, all the days of your life. So part of the way that the earth is cursed is that work is going to be difficult. Remember, Adam was told to work before the fall. Work is not part of the fall. Having a purpose, being industrious, using your time to be productive, that is not part of the fall. Work is something that God ordains before the fall. But the fact that work is now going to be hard, that it's going to be frustrating, that it's not going to work, in a sense, creation at times is now going to be oppositional. 
It's going to make work difficult. It's going to make work laborious. It's going to make work frustrating. That is because of sin. And that is part of the curse of Adam and Eve disobeying the Lord. Look at verse 18. It will produce thorns and thistles. You know, thorns, if you've ever had a thorn, you know, pierce any part of your flesh, that's incredibly painful. So it seems to be that before the fall, thorns and thistles were not part of creation. Or at least they were not a part of creation that was harmful. Because now creation is causing pain. Okay? It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. So again, incredible exertion and effort and toil, and oftentimes in frustration. You know, a lot of times in the ancient world, you would plant crops, and then locusts would get them all, or the rains wouldn't come, and they wouldn't sprout, or plunderers would come and take your crops from you. So in other words, there was no guarantee that if you put in the work, your family would eat. That's all part of the fall. That's all part of creation now being under a curse. So this very, very good creation that God made, there's still incredible remnants of that. The ground does still oftentimes produce food. Work is oftentimes satisfying. We oftentimes do put in an effort and have a good result. But what Genesis is saying here is that's no longer always the case because creation itself is under a curse. Creation itself is no longer in the full glory that was given to it when God created it. So picking it up again in verse 19, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So here is such an incredibly significant aspect of the new heavens and the new earth. They are necessary because this creation is no longer in its totality only very good. It was. But because of sin, now it is not. So we continue to see so much of creation that still reflects that very good state in which it was originally created. But we also see so clearly the results of the fall. So buildings that are built eventually decay and crumble and fall apart. Cars break down. Human bodies, which are part of creation, get sick, get weak, break down, ultimately die. The clearest indication of the fall, of course, is death. And what is the ultimate not very goodness of the physical world? is that our physical bodies die. There is decay, there is mildew, there is collapse. All of these are a result of sin. So what we see in the world, the universe that God has made, is we see now two principles at work. The principle that it was made very good, and there still is a strong component of creation that is very good, but it also is cursed. And it is now producing pain and effort and difficulty on our part. It is not cooperating with 
us in our mandate to subdue creation, and it ultimately puts evidence forth of decay and death itself. So, Flora, when we're looking at our physical bodies, you know, our physical bodies can be used to glorify God, and our physical bodies can be used to indulge in horrific sinfulness. So it's wrong to say that the human body is good or bad. The human body can be both good and bad. I can use my body to glorify the Lord. I can use my body to sin and rebel against him. So again, what we see in ourselves is sort of a microcosm of what's going on in creation. There are certainly unmistakable aspects of creation that indicate the incredible goodness of God, its creator. But there are aspects of creation that clearly indicate it is now under a curse. And so the great, great hope that we have is that this heaven and this earth is not the end. This world, this cosmos, is not the eternity that we as followers of Jesus are going to inhabit. And that's great news. That's great news. So when we see buildings fall down, when we see car accidents, when we see highways collapse, when we see you know, relatively insignificant things, mosquitoes bite, or thorns poke us, or we get a cough or a cold, or our loved ones get cancer and they die. I mean, everything from the most trivial to the most incredibly significant. All of those things, part of the curse of God against his very good creation because of humanity's sinfulness. So the great hope that we have is that this creation is not going to be what we occupy forever. God will create for us a new heavens and a new earth with all of the impact of sin removed. Everything that is an indication of this creation being under a curse will no longer exist in the new heavens and the new earth. So back to Flora's question, when we think about our own physical bodies, in a sense, our physical bodies have the potential to bring God great glory, but they also have the potential to bring him great dishonor. So the body is not necessarily in and of itself good or evil. It can be either. Okay? So does that kind of help to answer that, Flora? Yes, it does. Okay, good. Thank you. Yep. Well, let me just pause here to see if there's any comments or questions about these opening verses of Genesis, this foundation that we're kind of, of laying here. Yeah, Ted, you have a question? Yeah, please. I was thinking about the thorns uh, the, and the, 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 the thistles and thorns that are a result of the curse. And I was thinking about a little bit more about the significance of thorns in Scripture. And I, you were talking about how death and the decay that follows it are the result of the curse. But before death, we have disease. And I think, I think disease is a kind of a thorn in the flesh. And Paul refers to his thorn in the flesh that the Lord, he asked the Lord to take away three times. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you. So I think some people believe that that was some kind of a disease, maybe a disease of the eyes or some, some kind of a disease. But could be interpreted, I guess, to mean a person that was bothering him or annoying him. But I think, it's, I think thorns also represent disease as a result of the curse. And then I was also thinking about um, before, during Jesus' passion that they wove a crown of thorns and placed it on his head. And it, up until now, I just thought, 
well, that was just an, another example of the suffering he had to go through. But specifically, he bore the curse, the actual thorns that were cursed uh, in Genesis. Uh, he, he, he had those, and Jesus didn't sort of sail through life without pain. He had those thorns pressing into the skin around his head and around his neck must be incredibly painful. And so he, he literally, as well as figuratively and spiritually, experienced the thorns and bore the curse for us. Amen. Amen. Yeah, and certainly, you know, anything that we look at in creation, disease, all the things that we've listed and whatever else you can add to that, you know, those are all, for now, an integral part of this creation. And, of course, they all come as a result of sin. And that's why these opening verses of Genesis are so, you know, significant for us in this regard and so significant in every regard. I mean, you know, I think I, think I heard it said once, and I think it's probably true, that every major theme in the Bible can be found in the first three chapters of Genesis. And I think that's true. Every major theme of the scriptures are found in these opening three chapters. But for us, a couple of, of, of just incredibly significant points is that God is, is more than capable of creating a material, physical component to creation that is very good. Even though right now we see that it is cursed and that it has many aspects of it that are very bad, sin-stained and, 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 and under the curse of sin, that's not ultimately where God is going to end. God is going to end by creating new heavens and new earth for us. Okay? But any other questions or comments about these opening uh, verses from Genesis before we press on a little bit here? And I am going to keep an eye on the time because I just want to make sure by 8.30 we are done tonight because there is no tomorrow for the eschatology study. So, <laughs> no, no. Is there, is there anyone online that has it? Okay. So what we're going to do next is we're going to look at a couple passages from the Old Testament and they're all actually found in Isaiah, where the Lord gave visions to the prophet Isaiah of this something better that was coming. Because anyone who has lived in this world realizes there are significant parts of this world that are not very pleasant and are not very nice. And so praise God that we don't have to try to think about how are we going to live forever in this fallen, broken, ultimately cursed creation. So one place where the Lord gives his servant a glimpse is in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. The background is that a shoot is promised to come from the stump of Jesse. And Isaiah was shown what will happen when this descendant of Jesse, of David, comes to earth. So picking it up in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. 
They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, an incredible picture here that Isaiah has shown. And a big part of this vision that Isaiah was given was absolute peace in creation. And specifically being emphasized here is the realm of animals. So animals that would normally eat each other no longer are eating each other. In fact, animals that are carnivorous or eat meat in this incredible vision that Isaiah has, they are now eating straw just like herbivores. It extends beyond the animal kingdom because what we are told is that little children have nothing to fear from animals in creation. Even the most poisonous of snakes offer no threat to even the smallest of little children. It's an incredible picture. It's an incredible picture. And the conclusion of this little mini section of Isaiah is that all of this is happening because the entire earth is now filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So this is the completion of a process that is going on right now. Right now, the Lord is in the process of filling the earth with the knowledge of His glory. Everywhere that the gospel is preached, everywhere that the name of Jesus Christ is declared, everywhere that people repent and turn their lives to the Lord, what we see happening is that the earth is being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. But we see that it is not yet a completed process. We see the summary of this. They will neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. And again, the idea here is that Mount Zion is the place in which God himself lives. But what we see is that the entire earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory, not just the mountain that he occupies. So this incredible vision or prophetic word that Isaiah was given, looks at creation untouched by the curse of sin. It gives us a picture of creation completely untouched by the curse of sin. This is what is coming. This is what is coming. We don't see this yet. You know, you put a goat in a lion's cage at the zoo... And we all know what's going to happen. And unless the Lord miraculously heals you, if you get bit by a poisonous snake, we know what's going to happen. Of course, I think of the example where Paul was gathering wood and the poisonous snake bit him and he just 
shook it off. But you see, even there, in that case, what is happening? We've talked about this in the past. Remember the eschatology idea. So much of the blessings of the coming age have been pulled into the present age because Jesus Christ has come. So in the coming age, in the new heavens and the new earth, no snakes are poisonous. Well, when Jesus Christ came into the world, he brought so much of the goodness and so much of the blessing of the coming age into this present age. So when the Apostle Paul is bit by a poisonous snake, one of the things that was being pulled from the future age into this age is that snake was not poisonous or harmful to him. That's not the norm in this current heaven and earth. That is the norm in the new heaven and the new earth. But when Jesus comes, he pulls with him so much of the blessing of the coming age. Remember, that's what we talked about when we used the phrase realized eschatology. So Paul getting bit by a poisonous snake and it having no ill effect on him, that is realized eschatology. That is some of the blessing of the coming age, of the future age, being pulled into the present age because Jesus Christ has come. The same thing with healing. Why is healing a manifestation of the kingdom of God? Well, because as Ted was reminding us, in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sickness, there is no disease. And so every time that Jesus heals, whether it was on when he was on earth or through his servants now, any time that Jesus heals, that is a blessing of the new heavens and the new earth being pulled back into this present age. That's this idea of realized eschatology. So much of the good things of God that are coming are being given to us now because Jesus Christ has come. So Isaiah was saying there is a day coming when what we now see as a truth in process, a truth in progress, it will be completed. And on that day when the entire earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, this is what creation will look like. Okay? Let's jump to the next passage. Isaiah 65. And this is one actually we talked about when we looked at the millennium. Just because there's a verse in here that seems to be speaking of the possibility of, of death still being around. I don't want to spend too much time on that aspect of it tonight. But this is where Isaiah himself uses the language, the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to look at the end of Isaiah where he uses this as well. But Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17, he says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant of only a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth, and he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. 
For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not toil in vain. Remember, sweat and opposition, part of the curse that was in Genesis. Well, this new heavens and this new earth that Isaiah is describing, they will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So we can see in these verses that Isaiah is prophetically describing a new heaven and a new earth where the impact of the curse is no more. You will not labor and toil in vain. You will enjoy the work of your hands. Remember when we looked at Genesis 3, 17 to 19, there was going to be sweat and labor and toil and the potential for fruitlessness at the end of the process. So part of the blessing that is coming is that it will not be fruitlessness. It will be fruitful. Now again, the challenge that we mentioned is verse 20, where it seems that there could still be the possibility of death in this new heavens and this new earth that Isaiah is describing. Picking it up again in verse 20, never again will there be in it an infant of days. That's literally what the Hebrew says. The NIV provides who lives but a few days. So again, that's probably the right way to understand it. But in other words, there will be no infant mortality. What becomes a little more challenging is, or an old man who does not live out his years, or he who dies at 100 will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. So again, if you take that one way, you could say, well, isn't there's still the possibility of death after a very, very long life in this new heavens and this new earth that Isaiah is describing. And I would say yes, that certainly seems to be a reasonable way to read it. But in light of other things that we're not going to try to pull all that in together tonight because we spent you know, many Wednesdays talking about it, I don't think that's the best way to read that. I think Isaiah, again, is just speaking of an incredibly long and blessed existence where infant mortality is not a threat and ultimately premature death is not a threat. He doesn't go quite so far as to say that you will live forever, but that's not really anywhere in the Old Testament. That, that idea is not clearly made anywhere in the Old Testament until you get to, I think, Daniel. We've talked about Daniel 12, where they talk about eternity after being raised from the dust of sleep. So, again, we said that this is certainly one of these passages that's a bit more challenging. So there would be some that would say Isaiah 65 is describing the millennium. But to me, equating the new heavens and the new earth to the millennium is more problematic. Not seeing this as the culmination of God's work of redemption, to me, is more challenging. So I'm not going to try to say that verse 20 of Isaiah 65 is easy. I think it's very challenging. But I think if you take 
the prophets to be speaking not necessarily absolutely literally, but oftentimes figuratively, metaphorically. I think what they are, it's possible to say that what Isaiah is getting at here is just incredible longevity. And again, I don't, I don't want to get into all of it tonight because then we won't finish tonight. I certainly will not say that that is necessarily the only way or maybe even the best way to read Isaiah, but in light of the other things that we've looked at, it's what I believe makes the most sense. Because again, I think these snapshots that Isaiah is getting, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, and then let's just read the end of Isaiah, the last three verses of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. It says, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome or abhorrent to all mankind. So again here, Isaiah is specifically using the phrase, the new heavens and the new earth. But again, he's very, very much using the language of the Old Testament. Because he's saying from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all humanity will come and bow down and worship me. The new moon was just the beginning of each new 30-day calendar month. And there were special sacrifices that were to be made to the Lord at the beginning of each new calendar month. The Sabbath we're all very familiar with. That was the day of rest. That was every seventh day. So even here we see that the Lord is very, very much speaking in the context of what he had showed his people at that time. For us, speaking of new moon is not really that significant because we are living in the fulfillment of that. But the idea here is that the people of God and in fact all the inhabitants of the earth are going to worship the Lord indefinitely. From new moon to new moon to new moon. From Sabbath to Sabbath to Sabbath. So the idea that there is a never-endingness to this worship of the Lord. That's the way that I would understand these closing verses of Isaiah. But the main point in looking at these passages from Isaiah is just to see that on the pages of the Old Testament, God was indicating that this creation is not going to continue as it is. This creation is not going to continue eternally as it is. God is going to create new heavens and new earth. And specifically looking at the components of the curse in Genesis 3, we see that many aspects of that curse are specifically undone in the new heavens and the new earth that the Lord will create. Okay? But again, let me pause just to see if there are any comments or questions about any of these Isaiah passages that we have looked at. And again, if you're on Zoom, just put your hand up and let Carl know. But any comments or questions about this before we leave Isaiah? All right.
So what we want to do now is pick up just a couple passages in the New Testament and then ultimately end at Revelation because that's the appropriate place to end. So what we want to look at first in the New Testament is a passage from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 22. And this is the Apostle Paul giving us some incredible perspective on what is going on right now and what is coming. So I've been reading all of these passages. Do we have someone who's willing to read for us Romans 8, 18 to 22? Uh, Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from, the sla from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Okay, so let's just take a couple minutes and maybe let's, let's look at this passage this way. What does Paul say is true about the present age or the present creation? So in these verses that Ted read for us, what are some things that we see that Paul is, or how, how is Paul describing this present age or this present creation? That we're going to suffer. There is suffering. Verse 18. The sufferings of this present, or these present sufferings, okay? How else does he describe this present age or this present creation? Yes, Karen. We are, there's anxious longing. There's something that is desired after that is not fulfilled at the moment. So there is a longing. Another way of, 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 of translating one of the, the words there is a, an eager expectation. And in fact, looking specifically at verse 22, how does the Apostle Paul describe what posture is this creation in? So there is a, a groaning and the pains of childbirth. So again, when we think of childbirth, what do we think of? Labor pain that is can be long and awful. I mean, those of you who are moms in our midst, yes, bringing forth a child can be excruciating. But what does it give way to? The joy of a new life. So you can see how this is such an incredibly powerful picture of all of creation. All of creation right now is groaning and in the pains of childbirth. But we know that childbirth, if it goes well, leads to 
a glorious new life. And the pain of the process is quickly forgotten when the new child is embraced. So Paul is saying that's what this creation is doing right now. It's experiencing incredibly, incredible pain and agony and suffering. But there is an eager expectation. There is a longing for what is coming. How else does Paul describe this present age, this, this current creation? I think uh, the longing for the sons of God or for the children of God to be revealed, I think that's exciting because it's almost like, and, and it says it a couple times, but, but all of creation is just like, if only people could see who you were, if only we could see the, the glory that is to come. It's um, the second place where it mentions it. Right, and that, that's kind of a little dipping more into what is coming. Yeah. So we'll get to that in a second, because yes, that, that what is what's coming. But right now, that glory is not fully revealed. No, no, that's why it's longing. So what we would say is, on this present age, glory not fully revealed. Because remember, in those Isaiah passages, how does Isaiah describe it? But the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So right now, absolutely, what Seema is saying, this is what is being longed for, so this, that's what's coming, and we'll put that over here in a second. But right now, that glory is not fully revealed. So remember, we said that in terms of creation itself. Before the fall, creation was very, very good. There is still clear remnants of that glory, but that is now being clouded and marred by the curse of sin. So again, we see these, these, these parallel concepts here. Because here, it's specifically the glory of the sons of God. It's somewhat present right now, but it's not fully revealed, okay? But there's a couple other key descriptions that Paul gives of this present age or this current creation. What, how else does he describe it? Mm-hmm. So, futility, and it, the fact that it has been unwillingly subjected in futility. Well, who subjected it to futility? The Lord did. The Lord is the one that cursed his own creation. It's kind of sobering to think of just how devastating sin is. You know, sin is what led to the Lord himself cursing his own creation because that was a just and righteous response to the disobedience of Adam and Eve. He subjected his own creation to futility. Okay? That's why the Apostle Paul emphasizes, not by, creation didn't say, hey, we want this for ourselves. And so there is a futility, there is a frustrating component to creation. Again, going back to Genesis chapter 3. But, it's futility with what? It's futility with, with hope. 
So even though right now we don't have a full revelation of the glory, even though there's a lot of groaning and paining, even though there is a suffering, very similar to a longing or an eager expectation, there is a hope. Right now, creation has hope. It is absolutely biblical to say that ultimately no situation is hopeless because this is not in question. There is no question that God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. That is not in doubt. There is absolutely no doubt that everything that is wrong with this creation is going to pass away. There's no doubt. So no matter how despairing, no matter how awful, no matter how terrible a current situation might be, and there are many of those situations, they are never ultimately without hope. Because the great hope that Jesus Christ offers us is that he is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. There's one other key phrase that Paul uses here to describe this current creation. Yes, Karen? Slavery to corruption. A slavery to corruption, or some translations say slavery to decay. Remember, we talked about that as well. You can see how incredibly connected to Genesis this is. I mean, obviously, the, the Apostle Paul has the Genesis passage as a backdrop as he is writing this, equally inspired by the Holy Spirit. This creation is a slavery to decay. Humanity cannot build anything that's going to last forever in the material, physical component of creation. It will not. You know, 99.9% .9 of what was created in the ancient world is utterly gone to us. Only a fraction of it remains. And why? Because God cursed this creation. This creation is in slavery to decay. There is suffering and pain. There is an incredible longing in this creation. Why? Because we and creation itself knows that something better is coming. Knows that something better is coming. So now, how does Paul describe the coming age? Well, one of the things that we've already emphasized is that the full glory of the sons of God will be revealed. So as incredible as the new heavens and the new earth will be, and of course if you read Revelation 21 and 22, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, you know, what the Apostle John sees. As incredible as the glory of the new heavens and the new earth are, the absolute centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth is redeemed humanity. Is fallen, sinful, broken, daughters and sons of Eve and Adam in the full glory of Christ. That is the most incredible created glory of the new heavens and the new earth. Because obviously that doesn't even remotely compare to the uncreated glory that is God himself. So it's important that we understand in terms of created glory because nothing can touch the uncreated glory of the eternal God. But in terms of created glory, 
the revelation of us as sons of God being fully revealed, that is the most incredible aspect of the created glory of the new heavens and the new earth. And that really is the only thing that Paul says about it. Anything else you see in there that talks about the new or the, the coming age? Maybe one other thing in there. So there, yeah, there is a liberation. Just to kind of counterbalance the slavery to decay, there will be a liberation. There will be a freedom. So, but, but the word glory kind of really covers all of the undoing of all of this. Instead of suffering, there is glory. Instead of longing and expectation and hope, there is now having it. That there, there is no more hope because, as Paul says, you don't hope for what you already have. So in a sense, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no hope because everything that was hoped for is now fully received. It's kind of weird to think in that terms, right? But there is not a, a, a diminishment of glory. There is no futility. There is no groaning and paining. There is no longing for what is coming because it will have all come. There's a, there's a phrase in the book of Revelation where God is described as the one who was and who is. Now, we're always so used to God being described as the one who was and is and is to come. But it's in Revelation, I think it's like 14 or 15, where God is described as the one who was and who is. Because he's no longer the one to come because he now has arrived. <laughs> it's such, a, such an incredible way to describe the Lord. But, you know... In these verses, the Apostle Paul is just so incredibly powerfully you know, capturing this idea of a very good creation subjected to a curse because of sin, knowing and convinced that something better is coming, longing for that something better to come, and one day will give way to that something better. I mean, just incredibly profound verses here. But yeah, you had a, a question? Nobody can hear you on Zoom. Well, that love never ends, but faith and hope and love, it says the greatest of these is love because we won't need faith in heaven or Amen. hope. Amen. Yeah, to be honest with you, until we were just talking right now, I never really thought about, you know, Everything that's hoped for is realized, so there is no real hope then. Um, but other, other, other comments or questions about Romans 8 before we jump on to Peter here? One of the things about the doctrine that I find of the new heavens and the new earth is it's not, it's not maybe as, as complex as some of the things we've looked at connected to eschatology, and yet... There's just so much beauty and power in that. You know, it's not like trying to, you know, figure out the millennium, which, as we saw, can be pretty challenging. <laughs> it's not like trying to, you know, wrap our minds around eternal punishment, which, in its own way, is pretty challenging. You know, it's just so exciting to me that, for the most part, this is one of these biblical themes that is, is, is pretty amazingly straightforward. 
and that in no way diminishes the power of it. In some ways, it actually almost you know, augments the power of it. Because what we know is coming is just beyond human comprehension. And yet we absolutely know that for everyone who is following Jesus Christ, this is what eternity will hold for us. You know, and, and, and we'll see Peter say something really insightful in terms of, well, how should we live now because all this is true? So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. This is probably one of the clearest mentions of the new heavens and the new earth in the New Testament, save maybe the book of Revelation. I mean, Paul was obviously talking about it, but didn't quite say the new heavens and the new earth. Peter actually in these verses just comes right out and, and says it. So would someone be willing to read for us 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10 to 13? Do we have a volunteer to read that? Thank you, Karen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy contact, conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay. So one of the things that we see here is Peter specifically says that these things will take place on the day of the Lord. So remember way, way back last fall when we were beginning our examination of eschatology, we talked about the day of the Lord. And, you know, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is just simply the day that the Lord shows up. But in the New Testament, sometimes just referred to as the day, other times referred to as the day of the Lord, it is the day of the return of Jesus Christ. Well, what does Peter specifically tells us is going to happen on the day that Jesus Christ returns? What are some things that he says will take place when the Lord Jesus Christ returns? So the heavens are going to disappear with a roar, with a loud noise. The heavens will disappear, or some translations will say, the heavens will pass away. Okay? So Jesus Christ comes again, and the heavens pass away. Very clear indications of this in the book of Revelation. What else will happen? The ele elements will be destroyed with intense heat. So Peter specifically mentions fire, and the earth will be destroyed. It says the elements will be melted. The earth will be burned up. On the day that the Lord appears. So again, the idea that nothing in this present creation is permanent in terms of the physical creation, okay? And again, right in the middle of this, Peter tells us because of this, 
in verse 11, how should we live? How should we live? Yeah, Andrew. Holy and godly lives. You know, one of the accusations of believers looking to the future is that, you know, you may have heard the phrase that some Christians are so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. That's just a rubbish phrase. Because the more heavenly minded we are, the more earthly good we will be. The more that we are consumed with what is coming, the more that we will live a life of purpose and significance right now. Because all of this is happening, Peter just says, look, you know, because all of this is going to happen, the only option that you have is to live a holy and godly life. Because this is coming, it absolutely constrains and controls and, and, and mandates how we are to live right now. And we are to live holy and godly lives. And again, borrowing that idea that Paul put on all creation, we are to be expectant. It says, since everything will be destroyed, in what way ought to we live? People ought to be living holy and godly lives. As you look forward, verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So again, there is an, an expectation, a looking forward. We're not burying our heads in the sand, but we're not totally consumed with only what is happening right now. You know, sometimes I feel like we as Christians, we get too bogged down in the now. We're only concerned about what's happening now. We're only thinking about what's happening now. We're worried about what's happening now. No, God doesn't want us to be blind to what's happening now, but he wants us to be a forward-looking people. He wants us to be living with expectation to the day when the Lord will return. That's where he wants our vision to be because we will be a far more impact right now if we are convinced and confident and focused on what is coming. Okay? And of course we have here the clear teaching, verse 13, but in keeping with the promise, we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, the place in which righteousness will live. An incredible picture. Righteousness will live in the new heavens and the new earth. No injustice. No mistreatment. No unfairness. Righteousness will live in the new heavens and the new earth. One of the things I think that's worth making a comment on here, because Peter very clearly talks about the destruction of this physical aspect of this cosmos, is that it's important for us to realize, even though there is a destruction of the present, there still is a measure of continuity between what is right now and what is coming. And the best way I know of to understand this is us. You know, right now, we live in a body. But one day, this body is not going to make it. And this body is going to go into the ground, or this body is going to be cremated, or in some way or another, this body is going to decay and be destroyed. But one day, when Jesus Christ returns, we're going to receive a new body. But it will still be us. So in other words, the new creation is not something that is completely disconnected from the previous. Even the language 
God created the heavens and the earth. God's creating a new heavens and a new earth. So we have been rightly emphasizing the discontinuity between the original creation and the new. The incredible peace, righteousness, all of the undoing of the curse, the absence of death, decay, futility, all of that is gone. But we also need to rightly emphasize the fact that there is a continuity as well. It is God redeeming the old creation, just like us. You know, when you are spending eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, in your new resurrection body, it will still be you. It will not be a completely different person. Otherwise, redemption is meaningless. If it is not still you, redemption has no meaning. So even though there is an incredible discontinuity between the cosmos that we see right now under the curse of sin and the new heavens and the new earth that are coming, there also is a connectedness. Because this also is the idea of redemption. It's not God creating out of nothing as he did in Genesis 1.1. It's God redeeming this broken creation, just like he will ultimately and completely redeem us. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Any comments or questions about Peter before we finish up here from the book of Revelation? Yeah, please, Abelio. Thank you. Now, the, uh, <clears throat> you're saying that um, we're going to receive a new body, right? Yes. What about the, those who are going to be condemned? Uh, are they going to... Um, receive also new body or they, 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 will, they will keep their uh, uh, corrupted uh, body? No, that's a good question. And we, we did spend some time talking about it. But Abelio, I believe the scriptures clearly teach that both the wicked and the righteous are raised to eternal bodies. So it isn't just the righteous that receive eternal resurrection bodies but it is the wicked as well. Because right now, you know, all of the wicked people that have died, you know, ages ago, their bodies are, you know, disintegrated, decayed, they're gone. So no, John chapter 5 speaks of the resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. You know, Jesus says, do not fear. We talked about this when we were talking about hell. Jesus says, do not fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So there again is, a, is a, a picture of eternal punishment being suffered by the unbeliever in a physical body as well. So we talked about that a bit. Maybe that was one of the classes that you were not at, which, which is fine. But if you want, uh, we can look at a couple passages afterwards. But I think, I think it's John, well, we can just really quickly look right now. I think it's John chapter 5, I want to say verse 28 or 29. If you want to just jot this down, Abelio. John chapter 5. Yeah, John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. It says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. 
So the phrase that is used for this abelio is the phrase, the general resurrection. This is the idea that when Jesus comes at the end of this age, all humanity is raised to a physical body. But some will experience everlasting life, and others will experience everlasting condemnation. So everyone will receive a resurrection body. Okay? Yeah. But thank you for bringing that up. So, Revelation chapter 21. Obviously, this is the end of the book. This is the end of redemption. In a sense, this is the end of, of history and time. And so this, this book that I was reading, you know, I just loved the phrase, you know, Genesis 1.1, at the beginning of history and time, God created the heavens and the earth. At the end of history and time, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. I mean, I just... It's, it's Anthony Hokema's name, but he just, he penned that. I did not. It was just so beautiful and so powerful. At the end of human history and time, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. So let's just read Revelation 21, 1 to 5. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So here, at the end, John is given a vision of this new heaven and new earth. And specifically, the new Jerusalem is at the center of this new creation. But a couple of the things that John emphasizes in this is that everything is made new. God is making everything new. Everything will be renewed. Everything will be redeemed. Everything will be restored. And it's so important to understand it's not just creation before the fall. It's better than that. It's better than that. It's creation before the fall restored, and it's better than that. It goes beyond that. Because in that first creation, there was still the potential for sin. In the new creation, that potential for sin is gone. We will be remade, redeemed, renewed in such a way that we will no longer have the potential or the capacity for sin. It will be completely gone. So it's absolutely back to the garden, but it's back to the garden and infinitely beyond. You know, one of the things that sometimes we may wonder about is why there is no sea. You know, a lot of us love the ocean, uh, just love the beauty of, of God on display in the ocean. But from a biblical perspective, the sea is kind of the place of chaos. It's always something that sort of needs to be tamed and, and controlled and defeated. Um, 
And so this is the idea that there's no force of creation that opposes its creator in the new heavens and the new earth. The absolute intimacy between God and his people. There is no separation. You know, this incredibly powerful, often repeated phrase, you know, God will be their God and they will be his people. That comes to absolute fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, we're almost out of time, but what I would love to do is just end our time together by reading a bit more of Revelation 21 through the opening verses of Revelation 22. And again, if you want to, you can follow along. You know, if you want to just close your eyes and picture this as I read it, you can do that. But just let the Lord just totally overwhelm you with the goodness of what is coming. It says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city, walls, were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, 
bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God Almighty will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for how incredibly good you are. And Lord, tonight in particular, we just want to thank you that you will create a new heavens and a new earth in which there will be not even the slightest remnant of the curse, of the fall, of the brokenness that came because of our sin. And Lord, we fully acknowledge that the decay of this creation is our fault. It is because we have sinned. As we look around and get frustrated and annoyed and disappointed and hurt and angry at the brokenness of creation, you remind us, Lord, this is what our sin produces. This is what our rebellion and disobedience produces. But Lord, we just thank you so much that in every way, you are greater than sin. In our own lives, you are greater than sin. But what we are seeing tonight is that salvation and redemption is just so much more than our personal salvation and redemption. Of course, Lord, we are so grateful to you for that. Every one of us here tonight is, is eternally grateful to you for our own personal salvation and so excited about our personal redemption. But Lord, what we are, are being shown is that it is so much bigger than us. It is so much bigger. It is the entire cosmos being renewed because of the work of Jesus Christ. It is the entire creation being restored and taken to a level it never has known before because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that we are part of something that is so much greater, part of something that is so much bigger. And we thank you, Lord God, that all of eternity will not even be near enough time to thank you sufficiently, to worship you completely, to enjoy you fully. As all eternity unfolds, and as we are in your presence, and in the new heavens and the new earth, you will remind us of just how good you are every moment of that eternity. And we will worship you. And we will worship you. So thank you. And finally, Father, I do pray that these truths would not only just give us incredible joy and excitement and hope, but I pray also that these truths would transform how we live right now. I pray, Lord God, that we would determine to be holy and to be godly, just as Peter commands us. Because of these things, may we live holy and godly lives. And we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for all that you have done. And it's in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. 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 Well, thank you all so much for being here. It's been wonderful. As you know, for the summer, we will shut everything down in terms of the Wednesday Bible study, and we will ask everyone to make Friday nights a priority. And in terms of what will happen in September... When we are done with summer outreach, at this point, we have no idea. 
So as you think of it, pray for us as elders as we decide what is the best format for a midweek gathering uh, in September and the future. But again, thank you all so much. Wonderful to be together. The Lord bless the rest of your evening. Thank you.